Welcome to the State of Health, the podcast where patients put healthcare decision makers and thought leaders in the hot seat. I'm Gunnar Esiason. On today's Three Questions episode is Governor Mike Dunleavy from Alaska. The rule in a Three Questions episode is simple. The role of the interviewer will flip halfway through the show. Let's get to it. Governor Dunleavy, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks. It's great to be here, Gunnar. Thanks for having me. So early in the vaccine rollout, Alaska was a national leader, uh, despite largely being a, a rural state. How did you achieve so much success uh, with your rollout plan? And would you say that your rollout plan is a playbook for other rural parts of the world that are just starting their vaccination programs? Boy, the last part's a, that's a good question, but let me, let me address the uh, first part of the question. So we, um, in Alaska, we were hit pretty hard in 1918 by the uh, Spanish flu. We lost uh, more, more people in our uh, Alaska native population than anywhere else on the planet, maybe with the exception of Samoa. And when I came up here in the early 80s, I lived in rural Alaska for almost 20 years, small towns, small villages, uh, hundreds of miles off the road. And I would have conversations with survivors of that Spanish flu era in which their, um, their parents had passed away and they were sent into uh, missions or orphanages or, or, or adopted out. These, uh, these elders in the uh, 1980s would talk about what happened. My own mother-in-law, my wife is from a, a very small village up north. She's an Eskimo lady. My own mother-in-law lost her father to the flu in the 20s. And so it was, uh, it was a real, it was a real uh, uh, thing for me. And so we were the first state, very quickly, we were the first state that received the first plane load of folks from Wuhan. They were State Department officials and their families in January of, uh, of 2020. And we received them in our international airport at Ted Stevens, Ted Stevens International Airport. And we went on, uh, we, we let them disembark in, in a uh, abandoned part of our international terminal that was all set up for them. They were tested, et cetera, et cetera, and sent on their way down to California to another uh, Air Force base uh, for, uh, for further observation. But the long and short of it is, we knew that we were going to be somewhat on our own because we always are, just, just where we are geographically. We deal with earthquakes on a daily basis. Volcanic eruptions are, are common up here. Uh, floods are common up here. Uh, fires. So we deal with these disasters on a, on a regular basis. So we have uh, the parts of a team that we put together for, I think, what turned up to be actually a great pandemic response uh, uh, team. And so, as you noted, we had second lowest death numbers in the entire nation just after Vermont, which has a smaller population than Alaska. And what we did is we protected our most vulnerable really quickly, uh, our elders, our seniors, those with underlying health conditions. And so we protected them. And then when the vaccine rolled out, we were, we were all set up and ready to go. And part of the reason is that we have a, a somewhat of an integrated health system here in Alaska with tribal health. We have the uh, largest uh, Native American population at 15% per capita here in, in, in Alaska. And so we have had these um, systems set up and so we had somewhat of a decentralized distribution process where uh, health clinics and communities and hospitals and larger, larger communities were, were the ones that were distributing the vaccinations early on. We also worked collaboratively with them. We had our own uh, teams. We'd go out where there might be some hotspots to help the local folks with, uh, with dealing with the vaccination, dealing with the virus mitigation, et cetera. And so I do think there's, I do, I do think there's some things that could be uh, uh, learned from Alaska. Like I said, we've, We've got, most of our state is roadless. Uh, it, it'll take you, it's a 1700 mile trip to go from Shimia in the Aleutians all the way up to Kaktovik on the Arctic Ocean, it's 1700 miles and you're still within the state of Alaska. So you can see that we've had to adjust 
to deal with uh, deal with distribution of vaccinations, but also, like I said, mitigation. So integration of our, 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 our healthcare systems, collaboration and cooperation with our Indian healthcare systems, um, really, I think, um, really it really did well for Alaska. So um, uh, right now we're, we're pretty happy where we were and we're looking forward to where we're going, as we would say. So now the, what you talked about here is uh, a, a lot of really great points with how well the vaccine rollout has gone in Alaska. But as with much of the country, some vaccine acceptance has started to wane. Uh, and even the, you know, the success that Alaska was seeing uh, has started, started to regress near the U.S. averages in, in vaccine coverage after initially being way out in front. Uh, does, does your state have plans to increase uh, vaccine acceptance or sort of, you know, work to, to increase vaccine acceptance before the colder months uh, come on when the traditional cold and flu season washes over the U.S. and some epidemiologists are predicting, you know, uh, subsequent waves of, of COVID? Yeah, so we're, we're, still, we're still putting a lot of effort into media, communication, uh, et cetera. There's, a, there's some incentive programs that some of the local communities are using especially in the areas that there's a low, low vaccination rate. Um, again, the important, part, the important part is our most vulnerable have been protected and our, thus our death rates and hospitalization rates are way down. That's, a good, that, that's obviously a good, uh, uh, a good aspect of this. But I think what you're gonna see over time is um, unfortunately is uh, folks, some folks will get ill. They'll know some neighbors that got ill or some family members and that will spur them to get the vaccination. But in the end, we continue to communicate with uh, all Alaskans and, and those that have yet to get the vaccination. We're using a lot of our, our media approaches as well as some incentives. So we'll see where that goes. I think we're approaching, um, we're, we're heading towards 60%. Um, and as you mentioned, we got out pretty fast early on and took care of our, our most vulnerable, but uh, we're still working on this to, uh, to communicate with those that uh, may be a little um, uh, hesitant to get the vaccination. The State of Health, we'll be right back. Now, away from the vaccines and more towards people living with rare diseases like myself, uh, you mentioned earlier it's you know 1,700 miles from from one part of the state to another. <clears throat> Outside of those major cities in Alaska, you know, how do Alaskans with serious conditions or rare diseases access specialty clinics or centers of excellence either inside the state or if folks may may need to even travel? Uh, how, how does your administration help folks sort of access that highly specialized care that they may need? Well, we have a we have a telehealth component, obviously, uh, because of our distances and lack of roads. We have a well-defined uh, airline system here in Alaska. There's more private uh, private uh, airplane owners, uh, air traffic than probably anywhere else in the planet. Uh, we have a lot of jet service, 757s that can go to our smaller communities of four to five thousand that have actual runways that can accommodate these jets. And so, your center for really medical care is is Anchorage, and to a lesser extent, Fairbanks, our two largest cities. And then down in Southeast Alaska, Juneau, but most of the folks in Southeast Alaska, when they seek specialty care, they'll fly to Seattle, which comparative to other parts of Alaska is, is closer for those folks to get care. And so Anchorage is the place, Providence Hospital, for example, um, there's a doc that does business there that deals with uh, 50 to 70 CF patients throughout the state of Alaska. But uh, obviously it's difficult, obviously, obviously it's not ideal. We have about 730,000 people spread over 660,000 square miles. So it's a, it's a small population spread out over a subcontinent, makes things difficult. But once again, we have clinics in almost all of our villages. We, uh, we, do, we do have a pretty, uh, pretty good and growing telehealth approach 
to dealing with a lot of our uh, health issues. And we do have a, a pretty well-defined uh, air, air carrier system. Uh, medevacs, uh, folks getting on small planes, folks getting on larger planes, it's, uh, it's commonplace up here. And so again, it's not as robust as many other places in the United States just because of our small population. But as I mentioned, we do have about 50 to 70 CF patients. We do have a doc that's been here for a long time that, uh, deals, with, that deals with that particular um, uh, issue. And uh, they're located in Anchorage, Alaska. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, the role of the interviewer will flip. Governor Dunlady will ask the questions. Where do you see things going from your perspective as a result of this pandemic? What do you see changing in terms of uh, approaches to healthcare, especially dealing with issues such as CF and going into the future? You know, I think one of the best things that happened to, to specialty care early in the pandemic was the uh, the telehealth waivers that were given to people living with cystic fibrosis and other, uh, you know, other, other medical conditions that were able to benefit from it, simply because going to a hospital for someone with CF is a risk in, in, of, in and of itself, even outside of the pandemic, because of uh, all the infection control that does go into CF care. And I do hope that moving forward, uh, a lot of uh, highly specialized conditions or chronic conditions are able to uh, adopt some sort of telehealth regularity um, moving forward. And I think for me personally, I've been able to benefit from it. You know, I think having initially lived in New York and now live in New Hampshire, I think about as far away from you as possible as this podcast could ever be on the other side of the United States. But uh, having lived in New York, I knew that going to a, a, a clinic day was essentially, was essentially an entire day's worth of, of medical appointments. You know, it's, it's a full, uh, you know, six, seven, eight hour day. Um, whereas, you know, when I, when I'm able to, uh, to go on to telehealth, there's no commute, there's no parking that I have to pay for. There's no other tangentials that go along with care. And I think in a lot of ways, uh, specialty clinics could probably learn a lot from rural states like Alaska or even Vermont or New Hampshire about delivering care in effective ways for people who do live outside of those metro areas. Oh, that sounds good. Um, you, you mentioned some barriers, but what other barriers do you see <clears throat> Uh, to care for, for folks. So I, I almost look at living with a rare disease as almost like an unfair tax uh, in the sense that we are paying for other parts of care that the general part of the population usually does not have to until later in life. Uh, and I think it's really uh, important for me to impress upon policymakers like yourself and anyone uh, sort of making decisions across the United States that there are financial tolls that we do have to uh, account for, whether it's coming out of a hospital stay, a copay associated with a clinic visit. These are things that are essential parts of our lives uh, and are so important for us to, to really be loud and proud about when we're talking with policymakers about what it's like to live with something like cystic fibrosis that is so intensive and something that just takes over our entire day after day after day. Uh, and, and, I, and I do appreciate, uh, you know, you're willing to listen to, listening to me today. And of course, when other, uh, when other policymakers do listen to, to patient advocates, I think uh, patient advocates are some of the best people around and they're uh, certainly not shy from, from asking, uh, asking for what they need to survive. So you, you are a champion for, for folks that um, suffer from CF, obviously. And um, you know, a lot of credit, um, a lot of credit, obviously, to, to your folks that recognized early on that there, there needed to be uh, individuals like yourself and your family that puts this on the radar screen for folks to actually pay attention to it. Because it is, a, I think there's, what, is there 30 to 50,000 um, right. Americans that uh, suffer from CF? 
Um, so it's a small population. It's a small patient population. What are the ways you feel uh, this, the small populations of uh, folks affected by issues such as that you're dealing with the CF, how, how can they be heard? You know, I think one of the most effective ways that states are able to listen to rare disease folks uh, is, is through the establishment of rare disease advisory councils so that there is a voice and there is a say uh, at, at policy level decisions. And I think uh, and, and I, you know, I have to imagine you would agree that, you know, every single policy, you know, that, that, that is passed uh, requires feedback and listening and, and input from every single stakeholder that can possibly give uh, their feedback to understand how these things will either affect them positively or negatively. And uh, more and more states are starting to get rare disease advisory councils. You know, I'm, I'm hoping Alaska is uh, one of those states that that, uh, it, that that institutes one in, in the near future. Uh, and I think it's something that's going to be uh, something that I hope rather will be a norm uh, across the country. Uh, and they are great conduits uh, for folks like me living with cystic fibrosis or other rare conditions to get their voice heard when it really matters most. So if you don't mind me asking one more question, yeah. um, Gunnar. So there's a, there was a new breakthrough, my understanding here recently on a uh, I don't know how you would word it, a, a, a drug cocktail, a drug therapy. Um, and I, I forget the, how you pronounce it. It starts with a T. Um, but um, uh, what, uh, how promising is this? So, yeah, you're talking about Trikafta. Trikafta is a, a three-component drug. And essentially, uh, it, uh, it corrects the protein dysfunction at the heart of cystic fibrosis. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be one of the clinical trial participants. So I participated in the phase three clinical trial uh, that started back in 2018. And the drug changed my life overnight. Uh, I was uh, the kind of CF patient who was in and out of the hospital or on and off IV antibiotic therapy. Uh, really every month, I would have two or three good weeks in a row, then I'd have two or three bad weeks in a row. Uh, and Trikafta essentially changed my life in the blink of an eye. In, the, in, in two or three days, my cough vanished. In a week, my pulmonary function skyrocketed. And I was suddenly gripped with the question of what do I do next now that I can breathe? And I sent myself off to grad school. I finished my MBA uh, this past spring and sort of now I'm looking down the road at the rest of my life, just got married. So things are, things are definitely going pretty well in my life. But importantly, Trikafta was just approved for younger people living with cystic fibrosis. Uh, and I am so hopeful for that generation uh, of people with CF because I know they will live with the CF that is very different than the one that I grew up with. Uh, and that is really a testament to uh, America's biomedical uh, sector that is really pushing out amazing, amazing medications. Well, I think it's also a testament to folks like you that have gotten so involved in it and um, have really pushed the issue. And I think there's a, there's there's one more uh, uh, issue involved with um, with CF patients as well as other patients, um, and that's um, uh, a a antibiotic resistance, the uh, resistance to uh, uh, bacteria. And um, I know that you're also uh, you're also uh, working on that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, I think. One of the classic parts about cystic fibrosis is the respiratory disease that everyone sort of associates with CF, uh, but really the, the meat and crux of that, of that respiratory disease is uh, the antibiotic resistance that you're talking about. You know, uh, our infections are the kind of thing that uh, usually make, make headlines when somebody acquires something like as serious as this, as serious as one of these uh, in their own local communities. Uh, and these are, you know, bugs that we live with every single day. And uh, as you pointed out, you know, as we expose more and more antibiotics to those to those bacteria, they evolve to be uh, impervious to to our drug arsenal. So uh, I am a champion of the uh, of the AMR issue, antimicrobial resistance issue, and 
Uh, we do need more antibiotics now more than ever. And I think we learned over the last year and a half what an infectious disease can do to a society. Uh, you know, no one wants any more shutdowns. I don't want any more shutdowns. I don't want any of that ever again. Uh, and I think it starts with investing in the right place. No, it sounds great. Um, well, I appreciate the time. Is there any other question you want to throw my way? I, th I think we're great, uh, Governor. This was, this was fantastic. Uh, I appreciate uh, your time and, and coming on the State of the Health. Well, terrific. And uh, I want to thank you again for, uh, for your, your tireless efforts. Um, obviously, you were thrust into this, but nonetheless, you've, you've taken this on. You've become a champion for all of those suffering from CF and, and for those that have other uh, uh, chronic disease that, that doesn't, don't necessarily have a, a, a big spotlight uh, for folks to uh, follow. But again, um, thank you for what you're doing. I appreciate it. Thanks for, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. That's all for this week. Be sure to join us next week. New episodes come out every Wednesday morning wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at G17Assias and you can check out my website at GunnerAssiasin.com. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe to The State of Health and then leave a rating and a review. A big thank you to Governor Mike Dunleavy for today's interview. Also, a big thank you to Mary Boat for her help with this week's show. The State of Health is produced by Bob Dwyer. Thanks to Odyssey for making this podcast possible. We'll see you next week.